I'm Roger McCallum, a retired police officer who served in both the Royal Ulster Constabulary and more latterly the Police Service of Northern Ireland. I joined the Police Service in 1976 and eventually retired in 2002. I do a number of things in relation to peace and reconciliation work in Northern Ireland. One of the most important things I believe is being a trustee of the Royal Ulster Constabulary George Cross Foundation, which is an organisation set up to memorialise and mark the sacrifices and honour the achievements of the RUC. Uh, we're now standing at the entrance of the Royal Ulster Constabulary George Cross Garden. It was established in 2003 and is looked after largely by a team of volunteers made up of retired police officers and other supporters of the RUC. They look after the cutting of the grass, the planting, and also act as guides to show visitors around. I think we've had something like 40,000 visitors in the last 10 years or so. The garden itself consists of a history trail and there's also an area of remembrance and reflection which memorialises the names of all the police officers who were killed in the situation in Northern Ireland from the establishment of the RUC. We're heading now towards the History Trail, which tells the history of policing in Ireland. We'll just walk down the path, and the first thing that we can see here is a journey to remember. And this board talks about the journey beginning in 1814, when initial steps towards a police force were taken, making Ireland a policing pioneer in the British Isles and beyond. In less than 10 years, each county, there's 32 counties in Ireland, had their own force. Other significant dates coming up was in 1867, Queen Victoria awarded the royal title of the constabulary. The force was also granted use of the harp and crown emblem. In 1922, of course, Ireland was partitioned into the North and the South, and that is when the Royal Ulster Constabulary was formed, and indeed the Angarda Shikana in the South of Ireland. And we'll maybe move a little bit further along here. Officers never served in their native county, a little bit like when I joined the police service in 1976. You never really got to serve where you were from. I ended up in a place called Brownlow, which is nowadays, I suppose, in the middle of a place called Craigavon, which is between Lurgan and Portadown. I remember when I left the training centre having to get a map and asking somebody for directions there. I don't think I'd really been in County Armagh much before either, being from the north coast up around uh, the Portrush, Port Stewart area. And there was a lot of sense in that because it meant that you didn't have to place your neighbours, people that you're growing up with, been to school with, you could therefore be a lot more objective. The next board looks at the period 1900 to 1945, which was a very important terms in relation to the history of Ireland. It talks about the violence surrounding the 1916 Easter Rising and the 1919 War of Independence, which resulted in the Royal Irish Constabulary. That was the police service that covered the whole of the island then, being driven from more than half of its barracks, in other words, police stations, and the murder of 456 officers. The use of the word barracks rather than a police station goes back to the whole setting up of the RIC and indeed the RUC, which was more than a normal non-armed or uh, police service that you would get throughout the rest of the UK. 
there was always that element of militarism, simply because we seem to have been consistently fighting folk that wanted to break down the state. So you have a little bit more of an affiliation towards military terms than you would normally. We've now entered a little architecturally, I suppose it resembles a police sanger, a police sanger being a sort of guard house in the front of every police station, usually looked after by a police officer with a rifle to keep guard in the police station. Bandsmen were always afforded a special place up until the 1970s for getting into the police service. You could be slightly under the minimum height requirement, but if you could play a musical instrument, you were let in, and indeed some folk I knew that were significantly below the 5 foot 8 height limit did get in as bandsmen, but they did perform eventually the whole range of policing duties. There's a copy of a recruitment poster The 1977 recruitment poster features two very young police officers, not actually fully attested police officers, they are police cadets. You could join the police cadets at the age of 16 throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. I think uh, the police cadets were done away with in the 1980s, although there is some talk that they may be brought back in the future. Something, if you like, to fill the gap between a young person leaving school at 16 and maybe not being able to join the police until 18. The final uh, board in here are examples of community policing in the 1970s. The police officers, even in those dark and difficult and dangerous days, were out there meeting with the community. In the 70s, The RUC was one of the few organisations that was actually involved in community relations. I, being a young, a relatively young person in those days, was put in charge of the Blue Lamp Discos, which were a regular feature in the province on a Friday night in the 1970s. Good example of where the police would have gone out there and brought in young people from the Catholic communities and the Protestant communities to meet together in maybe a church hall or a community hall to listen to music, to do a little bit of dancing and begin to break down barriers between the two very entrenched communities that we had and to some extent still have in Northern Ireland. There was also a number of cross-community camps that we would have run Up on the north coast in particular, we would have taken away children and young people from various estates in Northern Ireland, tried to make it 50-50 between the Catholic community and the Protestant community, and over two or three days they would have got to know each other a little bit better and to, once again, break down those barriers. We're moving out of the little Sanger, along the path a little bit further. Next, a board is 1945 to 1967, looking at the evolution of the force. Each one of these boards that we're passing today is held up in such a way that it looks like a police officer is holding the board up. Now, it's a very metallic looking police officer, but we have a head, we have the legs, and we have two hands at the side. When you come here at night and you see them lit up, it is quite an impressive sight. The 45 to 67 board talks about Northern Ireland when it was comparatively 
peaceful place in the years after the war, with a crime rate only a third of the national average. And even today, with all the bad press and bad publicity and the bad feelings that sometimes the words Northern Ireland generate, it is still an area of very, very low crime. All right, we've had our troubles in the past and we've had things still going on with paramilitarism and organised crime. But compared with England, Scotland and Wales, it is still an area where it is very safe to live. The civil unrest is addressed in the next board, looking at the period 1968 to 1998. The period covers what is known as the Troubles, although some people talk about it as a conflict, some people talk about it as the war, some people talk about it as the time of terrorists. It really depends what perspective you're coming from. It was clearly a time of great pressure for the RUC. The peaceful civil rights protest led to unrest and rioting, and when public order deteriorated, the army was deployed in support of the RUC. So unlike anywhere else in these islands, from about 1969 onwards, you had for roughly 20 years the army daily patrolling the streets of Northern Ireland in support of the police service, as it was then the RUC. Indeed, if I recollect correctly, the army had primacy in fighting terrorism for four or five of those years until 1976, whenever the police numbers were sufficiently increased and the expertise increased. The Hunt Report of 1969 was the first attempt to try and change the RUC to reorganise it away from the paramilitary lines that it had beforehand and this did lead to extensive reform. One of the recommendations was that firearms be taken off police officers but with the emerging and increasing terrorist situation that clearly could not happen and even to this day in 2018 Every police officer is routinely armed, which is unique within the British Isles, including the south of Ireland, with our colleagues in the Garda Shikana. In, I think it was 1982, the United Nations, or Amnesty International, one of those organisations, said that the RUC was the most dangerous police service in the world in which to serve, uh, more dangerous even than the likes of El Salvador. So that really emphasises the difficulties was in policing the country in the 1970s and 1980s. I joined the RUC in 1976 and studied law at Queen's University from 1972 to 1976. In those days it was a four-year law degree. Never really particularly wanted to be a lawyer, but I did find I quite liked and was reasonably good at criminal law. So I thought why not join the policing service for a couple of years, do your bit, and very quickly, the two or three years I intended to spend in the police became 27, 28 years. I grew up in a very Protestant area in East Belfast. I went to a school which was largely Protestant folk because we still have this situation in Northern Ireland where... Catholic folk generally go to Catholic schools and Protestant folk go to what's called state schools. You would have libraries that were divided, you would have leisure centres that were divided, housing was very much divided and unfortunately still remains divided. 
You have the so-called peace walls in Northern Ireland that divide the two communities away. The peace walls were established largely in Belfast, but not solely in Belfast. There's a number throughout the province as the troubles went on, because until then you would have had Catholic communities and Protestant communities living side by side, particularly in the likes of North Belfast, East Belfast and West Belfast. There were sectarian attacks between the two sides, if you like, and there was a lot of movement of population from maybe what had been mixed communities back into their own areas, whatever their own areas might mean, where people felt a little bit more comfortable. And then it was decided to secure those own areas by the creation of these so-called peace walls, which are really huge walls, concrete and metal, between juxtaposed Catholic communities and Protestant communities, high enough to make sure that people couldn't throw stones over them. Certainly, gates were placed in them so that maybe sometimes during the day people could go to and from, but when darkness fell, the gates were locked up and it meant that the communities felt secure in their own areas. There's a huge amount of them, particularly in North and West Belfast, between the likes of the Shankill and the Falls Road. And unfortunately, they haven't come down 20 years on. They're maybe higher than they were before. There's a lot of excellent work going on on the ground with the community leaders to try and slowly bring them down. But unfortunately, given the Northern Ireland situation, they've become something of a tourist attraction. And you have people coming to Belfast on the bus tours, going up to see the Peace Walls, observe the Peace Walls, taxi drivers taking people up there as well. And there's now a little bit of a ritual of folk signing their names on the Peace Wall. I believe most of the communities living very close to the Peace Walls get a certain amount of satisfaction with them still being there. But the work is going on on the ground to try and persuade folk in this, what I believe is a slightly better time, to reduce this visible sign of segregation. 1999 onwards is the next of the boards here when the Queen honours the wider police family and as peace progresses, the police face new challenges and opportunities. This takes us up and beyond the time of the Good Friday Agreement and the Patent Report with its 175 recommendations as to how to evolve the police service in Northern Ireland, policing being one of the most contentious issues in Northern Ireland. The great thing about it is that I think all apart from one of the 175 recommendations has been implemented. They tried to develop a brand new, new build green site police training college in the Cookstown area, in the centre of the province but for a variety of reasons that didn't get off the ground and the police college is still in Garneville. I was involved with setting up the International Police Desk in the RUC in the mid to late 1990s and we were able to second 60 police officers from the RUC to work with the UN mission for peacekeeping in Kosovo just after the decision was made to try and civilianise the situation out there 
and for three or four years, 60, 70, 80 police officers from the RUC served out in Kosovo. Even today, old RUC members and PSNI police officers are working throughout the world on a number of different projects. So I think one of the upsides about all the issues that we had to deal with here was that there was an awful lot of learning went on. Just as in the Royal Victoria Hospital, there was a lot of learning went on in relation to how to deal with trauma victims and victims of terrorism. The police service over here, as the RUC, learnt about counter-terrorism strategies, how to investigate organised crime, and those bits of expertise are being used throughout the world today. In the spring and in the summer, the area that we've now entered would be awash with colour. This particular time of the year, planting is going on. I will come down the garden again through the flower beds towards the memorial part of the garden, which honours the sacrifices of the 302 police officers and their families who were killed during the Troubles between 1969 and 2001 when the RUC became the PSNI. So if we just go to the right hand side here, you may hear a small stream in the distance. This is an integral part of the garden and we're just entering it now and up to the right hand side we can witness the stream coming down from a sculpture at the very top. Along the left hand side we have seven police officers standing with the attention in the way of sculptures. A little bit like the description I gave of the police officers holding the history boards earlier on representations of police officers that double up as lights standing over the names of their fallen colleagues. There are eight plaques to the police officers that were killed between 1922 and 2001. We'll look at the 1922 to 1939 plaque first of all where we see the names of police officers who were killed as a result of terrorism and police officers who died in service. Now in the 22 to 39 period, it's mainly police officers who died in service because largely the situation was more in the south of Ireland then and things had returned to relative normal up here. But as we go on further up, you'll see how the balance changes. 1950 to 59, there was a campaign by the IRA between 1956 and 62, not anywhere on the scale of the more recent one, but certainly we have there four police officers who were killed in that particular period between 56 and 58. And now we're at the plaque. 1960 to 1969. Then we had the first police officer who was killed as a result of the more recent campaign 
a Constable Victor Arbuckle, who was killed in 1969. Interestingly enough, he was killed by people from the Loyalist community. We move on to 1970 to 1979 period, which was when the RUC police officers suffered their greatest amount of deaths. As you can see, there's quite a number there. I would say we're talking about maybe a hundred or so. There is one guy in particular here, a guy called Kenny Lynch. And there's Kenny Lynch's name there. Kenny Lynch and I, when we joined the police at the same time in 1976, and we shared in a dormitory the same dormitory. And in fact, his bed was beside my bed. And he was a lovely fella uh, from County Tyrone. Very decent person indeed. And he was killed along with two of his colleagues on the 2nd of June, 1977. It's such a random thing why Kenny's name should be there and my name's not there because we both joined at the same time. That was... 41 years ago, so he would have been well into his 60s by now. You can see there again about 100 police officers killed in the 1980 to 89 period. Uh, Superintendent Bob Buchanan and uh, I think the highest ranking police officer to be killed murdered is Chief Superintendent Harry Breen. Harry and Bob were crossing the border from a meeting in Dundalk and were ambushed and killed in 1989. So from Reserve Constable right up to Chief Superintendent, all were targets at various times. And that's the final back there of 2000 to 2001. The RUC became the PSNI in 2001. And uh, that is why this is the last particular plaque here. The bottom bit of the plaque here is dedicated to those former members of the RUC who were killed as a result of terrorism. These would be people that would have retired but were still remain targets to the IRA because they had once upon a time served for the police. There we go. 302 police officers killed, many families affected, the communities affected. You sometimes ask, what did it all achieve? As I said before, in 1982, it was described as the most dangerous police service in the world in which to serve. And yet, every year, hundreds of young people from Northern Ireland came to uh, serve in the RUC. It was a family tradition. For example, my grandfather was in the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Royal Ulster Constabulary. I was in the Royal Ulster Constabulary and then in the police service of Northern Ireland. And my son is a serving police officer in the police service of Northern Ireland. And I sometimes wonder 
what the evolution will be from the PSNI to what in the future with all these various challenges that we have facing us. Policing is only part of the issue of this part of the world, reflecting upon the 20 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Are we progressing? Yes, we are, I believe, progressing. Slow steps, a little bit slow at times, but we are going in the right directions. Communities still have a lot of issues. We've talked about the so-called peace walls that are still there and that they are growing. We still have the segregated education. Something needs to be done there. One of George Mitchell's closing words when he left this country, one of his central points that he made is that we need to have integrated education in this part of the world. We cannot go on with Catholics going to one school and Protestants going to another school. And some are learning Irish history and some are learning British history. And some are learning the Irish language and others are opposed to the Irish language. We have far more in common with each other, I believe, than we do with people in Great Britain or in the Republic of Ireland. There's 1.82 million of us and surely the time is now here that we have to move a little bit faster down this path. I know it's all about a journey. I once was talking to some well-known peace worker and being a police officer at this particular event, I was being quite impatient and I was saying, why can we not get to the product of the process of what we're trying to do, whether it be the peace process or the integrated education process or the community respect process or whatever. And she said, Roger, it's not so much the product, it is actually the process. It's the fact that we're going to have people under the same roof that were sworn enemies beforehand or from different communities talking in a respectful way about what they see as the future and where they see us in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time. It's about empathy. It's about trying to learn and think about what the other or them ones or the folk on the other side of the peace wall are thinking about. And a good way of doing that, I believe, is through the telling of stories or narratives. One of the big things that the RUC Foundation is involved with is the collection of oral histories from police officers and their families who served, and we've got 350 of those. And we can listen to those, and we're beginning now to share them with folk from other communities, from the Falls Road, from the Shankill Road, from Derry, Londonderry. What I find is that people have a real interest in hearing the others' stories, and are very respectful in listening to the stories. Then the trick is to begin to get the storytellers into the same room and they can tell the stories to the other because we're in this search of what the truth was in the past. We need to tell the stories and we need to hear the stories. And a great way of doing that is sometimes via the medium of drama. So in the past we've been involved in a number of projects in bringing these stories to life on the stage. There's been a play called Crows in the Wire which addressed a few hours 
in a police locker room at the time of the transition from the RUC to the PSNI and the various tensions that were going on there, which were very real tensions for a lot of police officers who felt they'd been betrayed by the government because they had to change their name and they had to change their flag and they had to change their badge. The other play that was recently commissioned and is still performing was one called Green and Blue, which was a story of an RUC officer and a Garda Shikon officer on the border talking to each other. The interesting thing about the Green and Blue play is that the playwright was a guy called Lawrence McKeown, and Lawrence McKeown was a hunger striker for the Provisional IRA in the 1980s. He took the stories of a number of police officers. I think it's a very good play. I think it's a very fair play. Certainly it challenged a lot of us to have Lawrence write the play, and I'm sure it challenged Lawrence as well. Last about an hour, and after each performance there is facilitated discussion. The cross-community post-performance discussion has brought up a number of interesting facts. Having been in the likes of the bog side with the plays up in Derry, Londonderry, or on the Falls Road, where it's been performed as well, and having the privilege of taking part in the panel discussions, the views have been very respectful. And the great thing that's coming through is the fact that people now, for the first time, are maybe hearing the authentic voice of what it was like to be a police officer serving in difficult times and that we weren't all out there colluding with loyalist paramilitaries to attack the Catholic communities. The vast majority were just out there doing their best in very difficult circumstances. So it's about dialogue, it's about putting our stories out there, it's about listening to other people's stories. So whether it be about stories and narratives or drama or the creation of tapestries where people can tell their stories through the arts, it is all a very good way of going forward. These little small steps, hopefully, are building up a great momentum within the communities because we can't wait for the politicians to get their acts together because we'll be waiting an awful long time and some are doing a very good job and I'm not criticising all politicians. We have to accept change and we have to move forward to build upon what Clinton and Blair and Ahern and the rest of them talked about yesterday on the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement to build upon the peace to make sure that we don't lose it. And I think policing has a very important part to play there as well.